Generative, by contrast, is something that suggests your building is built in such a way that there are so many different ways for you to move around and the opportunity to interact and bump into other people is much more significant because you've created a place that encourages, you know, going this way one day, going that way the other day. And so what we love about that idea was we think that the workplace itself, the building itself, can help you build better relationships. When you have better relationships, you're much more likely to build trust within an organization. Welcome to the Wonder Podcast. This is your host, CCB, with another episode of Interest. And I love thinking about all the different ways that we can pique your interest. And today's guest is going to talk with us about a healthier workplace, which couldn't be more appropriate given our times. I wanted to welcome Kelly Griffin from MBBJ and say thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, CCB, and thanks so much for having me. I am so passionate about this topic. I just really appreciate the opportunity to to have other people learn about it and hear where we're coming from when we think about what it means to have a great day at work. So I came at this. Um, I grew up as an architect. I, you know, went through the whole uh, transition from being a young designer, to a project manager, to a client person, but I've always been so fascinated with the human side of things and how we can create great environments that make people feel productive and healthy and safe and like they're well-regarded and valued in what they do. And so for me, after, geez, I guess about 20 years of my career, I was able to work on probably one of the the things I'm most proud of, which was the Gates Foundation here in Seattle. And it was through that project that we worked with a consultant from London named Alexi Marmot. And she joined our team as our workplace consultant and workplace strategist. And watching her at her craft, because she's such a master of it, showed me that we can actually have a role in understanding the people that we're doing this work for the way the organization ticks, the culture that they're trying to create. And it really got me focused on the idea of building workplace strategy at MBBJ. So that was my path. We've been having a great workplace strategy team since about 2014. And I get to understand all the inner workings of these great organizations that we work with. And I love hearing people talk about what makes them successful. That's so exciting. And, you know, the reason, I mean, there's so many reasons why I think it's exciting. Um, One of them is the plethora of workplace strategists that are popping up left and right right now. And without a doubt, it is a gigantic need because of our massive, you know, departure from the office, from the workplace and the amount of time that it's taking us to get back together. So clearly there is a need. And then there are people that are coming at it from many different directions. So we've got people coming at it from the IT perspective and people coming at it from the more culture you know, perspective. There's lots of different perspectives. But the reason why I'm saying I think what you guys are doing at MBBJ is so interesting is because of the amount of time and interest that you have devoted to understanding 
so we we could come at it from an you know an um, experiential or anecdotal you know informal kind of perspective our learning or and we can bring the the, the research and the science behind it so that there is an explanation for not only what you see, but what you do. So I want to ask you a couple of questions about um, early fascination with this work. And I know you had talked about um, Kirsten Seller at the University College London. And you spend a little bit of time on regenerative versus conservative. Versus conservative. Yeah. I love those names because they're so almost British, but go. <laughs> <laughs> so Kristen uh, wrote a paper that we came across as a, as a firm, probably, I don't know, five, six, eight years ago. I can't even remember. It's been around for so long, but she talks about the concept of the conservative versus the generative workplace. And the conservative workplace is an environment in which the physical wrappings of that environment encourage you to maintain the same relationships that you already have. You could literally drive into a garage, park your car, go up the elevator to your floor, grab a cup of coffee at the pantry that you visit every day, go to your workstation or office, and generally only run into the same people day after day after day. You're preserving and conserving relationships. Generative, by contrast, is something that suggests your building is built in such a way that there are so many different ways for you to move around and the opportunity to interact and bump into other people is much more significant because you've created a place that encourages you know, going this way one day, going that way the other day. And so what we love about that idea was we think that the workplace itself, the building itself, can help you build better relationships. When you have better relationships, you're much more likely to build trust within an organization. And with trust comes really silly ideas and really innovative out there ideas and a group of people that you feel safe working with to help advance the work of your organization. And so for us, that idea of generative workplace was super, super powerful. And knowing that we could create really interesting environments that reinforce that idea. So there's the, um, the input of that environment that can be intentionally designed. And then there's also to your healthier workplace in so many different ways, there's the movement that you, you addressed. So talk to us a little bit about that keep moving. Yeah, so that's a, that's actually this wonderfully fundamental thing about humans. And, um, you know, being science geeks like we are, not only have we understood the work of Kirsten Saylor, we've also been working with Dr. John Medina. He's at the University of Washington, and he's a molecular biologist and the author of a series of books about brain rules. And his research really focuses on the fundamental qualities of being a human and what makes us tick. He acknowledges that we evolved outside in the savanna and generally on the move and always a little bit scared. And frankly, however long ago that was happening, 100 to 100,000 years ago, we haven't really evolved beyond that. And so there's so much of that inherent part of who we are as humans that still comes out today. So one of the first things he taught us is that movement is critical for our health, for our success, but also to keep our brains working. And when we think about how much time we spend sitting in a chair, even before the pandemic, we were still moving a lot less than our, um, our ancestors did 
who would move 13 miles a day in search of food. And sometimes right now I feel lucky if I get 5,000 steps a day. <laughs> but, you're, you're ahead of me. <laughs> <laughs> but in, so the movement is such a critical part because in motion, we're actually also thinking at our best and creating really interesting new ways of approaching things. Dr. Medina actually suggests that the best meeting would be a moving meeting where we're all walking around together because that's when our brain is actually heightened and active and much more connected to what's going on. And, and for me, when we think about space and when we think about the environments we can create, movement is easy if you put in a stair or if you put an amenity in the middle somewhere that everybody has to walk to, there's a lot of benefit for that. And I don't think we realize that until maybe even during the pandemic when it kind of hit us that we could actually go take a walk every you know couple hours, presuming you weren't on Zoom calls all day, but that that actually helped you reset and sort of refresh and feel better at connecting with people again in this weird environment. I'm inordinately grateful that you just brought up like a benefit from COVID, uh, the pandemic, because you know that's a good thing to keep from a perspective setting standpoint at this moment <laughs> in time. Um, but I'm glad, I'm also glad that you uh, that you introduce the applications of the science and some of the some of the observations and some of the guidance that you might share with your clients as you're helping them create spaces. And um, along with that that um, that movement, there was the uh, the focus and the attention. We talked about how hard it is to focus these days because right. we're overwhelmed. But talk a little bit about that and the big. Um, gift that I saw in your paper was the 90, 90, 15, uh, ratio. So, So talk to us about that. Yeah. So one thing that we have learned again from Dr. Medina is that our brains are pretty good at working in moments of sort of heightened stress or heightened activity for about 90 minutes. And then after that, our ability to stay focused and not make mistakes really starts to plummet. And after about 120 minutes, we are toast. You know, it's really hard for our brains to keep up that kind of engagement and attention. And so one of the things that we find ourselves doing is like, if I just keep pushing through, I'll make it. I know I can get through this. We haven't given ourselves the gift of acknowledging you know what, it has been about an hour and a half and I'm pretty tired. I'm going to take a break right now. And so one of the ideas that we keep talking about, and this is one of those moments where space can be a part of it, but culture and operations is also another part of it, which is to say after about 90 minutes, what if our computers all kind of turn to a scene of nature? What if it said time, go take a break, go stand outside in the sunshine if it's there, or you know, take a breath of fresh air and take about 15 minutes for yourself. And that could be as simple as spending some time outside, taking a walk around the block, just even doing some deep breathing can help restore you to that uh, ability to think and be on top of things again. There's been some really great studies that show that, um, that where people have studied nurses and after that 90 minute threshold, they realize they start making mistakes. And so that's when it becomes a real critical issue and you want to make sure that people do get those breaks. And frankly, our society and our work culture doesn't really let us do that. I think, again, if we're thinking about one of the the potential silver linings of the pandemic is thinking about 
wait a minute, I have a little bit more control over how I spend my day. If I knew that this was a thing that was true, maybe I could do something about it. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about the fact that uh, work is going to fundamentally change for a long period of time, at least the way that we approach work. Um, and the, the idea of you know, nine to five or nine to nine is, is, has another silver lining has gone out the window. It's like, no, there are more important things and the life work balance. Let's not talk about work life. Let's talk about the life work balance needs to, has, has been a gift because it's given some people the opportunity um, to manage that a little bit more effectively. Um, So I'm sitting here thinking about how, uh, the impact that uh, the old way of working going out the door um, gives us the opportunity to restructure and redesign. And you at, and the, your colleagues at NBBJ, I know have been thinking about, you know, not only, and you mentioned it earlier, not only space, but protocols, but policies, but culture elements. But um, so, uh, there's two things that I want to ask you. So the first one I want to say is, so how is that all coming together? And, and um, from tool standpoint, you're building tools or you're building, um, yeah, you're building um, suggestions and guides and um, uh, prompts for your clients. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, we've actually created, again, based on the research with Dr. Medina, this thing we're calling the rhythm of the day tool, where we're asking people to evaluate uh, when they feel at their their most alert, when they feel they're most fatigued, and where are the places that that alertness is really enforced, and where are the places that people go to to recover from that fatigue. And what it allows you to do by, it's basically a survey instrument, and you use it as a way to inform not only, you know, maybe a set of designers about the kinds of spaces that people feel like, oh, wow, this is a really good environment for lots of activity and alertness and engagement. And this is an environment that doesn't work as well for that. But it also is an opportunity to build your own self-awareness so that you're in a position to exert a little bit more control over your day. When somebody asks you, do you get tired in, you know, after about an hour and a half of doing work? I bet you before the pandemic, nobody would have asked you that. You would have been tired at the end of the day. You would have known you'd be sleepy after lunch, that kind of thing. But to have the very specific information that says, give yourself a break after that amount of time, simply by asking you to think about it through this survey instrument, I think is really fascinating because it tells us something that maybe we intuitively knew, but now we can be explicit about it and understand that there's a way to address that fatigue that shows up. Hmm. Um, there's so many, there's so many folks that are trying to, you know, come at um, some of this nudge activity um, that, that um, Cass Sunstein and what's his name, Thaler, I think, from who wrote the books about, or the, the, the original book about nudge theory and thinking about how do you just you know prompt people in the right direction, the direction that you you know intend, and that's obviously been uh, extremely embraced by our technology friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea of um, of you know 
no, everyone doesn't need to have a PhD to understand this. Right. That, um, one of the little uh, prompts or suggestions that you had was turn off uh, business phones during sleep hours. Yeah. Seriously. That as a message. <laughs> well, no, but that as a message that you do, that's a message that, you know, we don't expect you to answer the phone. I can say that to you and you're, I'm, you know, you're still going to answer the phone if yeah. I'm your leader and I call you, but if it's turned off, that is, that has that dual, you know, not only did we say it, but we're doing it. Yeah. I think, so there's a couple of ways it's sort of fascinating, right? Because there's the technology side of it, which means that, you know, here is your office issued phone and laptop. And oh, by the way, everything shuts down and emails don't go out after six o'clock at night. That would be sort of a control that you could put into it. That doesn't necessarily stop your boss mm -hmm. or your manager from texting you on your personal phone, right? Which implies that you always have to be on. To me, the other thing that has been sort of a silver lining of this pandemic is the acknowledgement that we do deserve space and that we can say, I, it's been enough today, I need to take a break. And I think there's a lot more empathy. I think this pandemic has taught us an incredible amount of empathy in a way that suggests that we all understand a lot better about what people are going through and we're not gonna push on each other as hard. I also think that managers have realized that if they're going to attract the talent that they want and keep the talent that they have, they can't behave in as many demanding and high expectations ways that sets up a culture of maybe your computer turns off and you don't get any notifications after six o'clock tonight, but I'm still going to text you. That tells you it's a culture of overwork and high demand. Versus somebody who's going to show up and say, no, I'm not going to, I don't, I'm not going to send any emails. And if you send me an email, I am not going to respond to it. That makes me laugh because my thinking was it would go off at 10 and, you know, turn on again at five. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but, but when I laughingly say that it is about the expectations, it is about the different cultures, the different cultures of the, of work and of business, the uh, organizational cultures that embrace and, or, you know, or have to, uh, modify whatever the suggestions are to fit within their culture. Yeah. And I love the, I, the thought that, you know, culture is, culture is behavior. It, you know, you can be intentional about shaping culture. And then if you're not, you have a culture that is comprised of all the things that you didn't pay attention to. Exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. So uh, I had that one little note to myself about follow the circadian rhythms. And the, the reason why I thought about that was also taking you back to the, um, the, our, our ancestors and uh, the, the whole idea of biophilia and you talked about outside. So the, the elements and you've drifted in comments that you've made, the elements of nature that um, how much better we feel. Exactly. And um, so I'm in Seattle and um, yesterday was the first day that the sun set after five o'clock since November. And so to be in the dark all the time has been really rough. And I finally been able to figure out how to get outside during the day and get some sunshine and get some light because that's how we're built. Humans evolved outside and we are running on roughly between a 23 and 25 hour clock every day. And 
those rhythms are set up by the light that is emitted by a rising sun and by the light that's emitted by a setting sun. And the, the need to be asleep at night is a big part of our health as well. And so the circadian rhythms are super fascinating because when we sometimes go to our offices, we don't have access to daylight. We're under terrible, it used to be terrible fluorescent light, at least it's better LED lighting these days. Um, but the lights don't reflect a natural rhythm of a day with a changing quality of light and the way that your body is tuned to that. We actually have a fellow in our um, practice named Joseph Montaigne, who's done a lot of research. He's a lighting designer and he's done a lot of research on how do you replicate some of the circadian experiences and using lighting over the course of the day in the workplace. And he's studying it with some of our healthcare um, clients who are really interested in trying to keep their nurses up and alert, especially if you have to do night shifts, right? Because that's completely off. But I think having the acknowledgement that early morning has a certain mood and a certain tone and has a certain light quality, it sends off all the, it triggers all the sensors and, and things in our brains and our eyes that say it's time to be awake, it's time to be alert melatonin levels change so that you are in a much more alert mode versus at the end of the day when all of that starts to wind down. The other thing that I think has been fascinating about that is that that 23 to 25 hour clock also suggests that some of us are very good in the morning and some of us are very good in the evening. There's the larks and the owls is sort of how they're talked about. And um, that goes back to that idea of when am I most effective and when do I want to be working? For me personally, it's first thing in the morning. And then by noon, that's enough of that. I, you know, I can do other things, but my really good GC brain time is first thing in the morning. So we need to think about not only how space can support that, but also how organizational culture will enable that kind of behavior. And if it's an owl person and they don't need to get going until one o'clock in the afternoon, but they're super productive and that's when they want to work, then we should embrace that too, because that's when we're accepting you as a human, how you function and what you can be good at. So, which is great given the fact that there's so much research and so much data coming out right now that folks are way more interested in the flexibility of their time than they are, you know, in the you know, private office or the, you know, the, they would rather have control over their, when they work rather th even more so than where they work. And that was just a recent Microsoft study that came out, which I thought was pretty fascinating. Yeah. Um, okay. So um, I have a question for you about uh, your practice and NBBJ works across many different industries. And so how does your workplace practice support all the different industries um, and, uh, and how, um, who are the, if you could say, if there are, are, are there different client types that are more embracing of this knowledge or this information at this moment in time, or are there, or is, is it hard to talk people into listening? I mean, I'm always curious about that. Yeah. You know, it's super interesting because it's, um, all of the above across all the industries, so one of the things I have observed is that culture really does drive behavior when it comes to people's attitudes about flexibility and about choice and about rethinking their work environments. And some of the cultures that we've run into that are more hierarchical, um, are more bound by regulation or are just very traditional in nature. It might be finance, it might be academia. Um, those 
folks are having, uh, they fundamentally believe that they do better when they're in the office and really want to go back to a pre-pandemic workplace, work life. There are other folks that we've talked to who think that this really is the paradigm shift they've been waiting for to try something else. And um, we've worked with folks who have been focused on reducing the space in their um, real estate because they realize not everybody's gonna be back. We're gonna have terrible utilization. Let's look at making our physical environment more aligned with the number of people who are gonna be here to other folks who have given up their workplaces entirely and are thinking about moments where we're gonna have a learning center here so that we can train people up in our the way that we work and the way we, that we think and we can help them grow in our organization. Or we might have a little drop-in co-working space over here to help folks who can't necessarily be at home all the time or who are you know, really bored at home all the time. So they're looking at kind of a network of spaces, not their traditional acres of workstations and monitors where you sit all day, but rather moments that meet very specific work needs. That tends to be more on the technology side of things. Um, I recently started working with a new mental health institute that's gonna be um, in Utah. And this was a fascinating group of people who are, their primary goal is to bring collaboration to this institute and bringing ideas from a whole bunch of different places and a whole bunch of different expertise to inform mental health problems and to help solve mental health problems. They're embracing that and how they wanna do their research, but they're also embracing that and the, the design team that we've built for them. Um, and traditional research, traditional academia has lots of you know, private offices with professors and you know, principal investigators who own a lot of real estate. This organization is really fascinated with the ideas that we can bring from technology or even from some of the gaming companies that we've worked with and wanting to embrace those ideas because they think it'll give them the lift that uh, they're looking for to say, we're a different kind of research organization and we're building a different kind of space to help really emphasize that. Wow, okay. I told you when we started this that it was going to go really fast and we are at the end. And it's just, I mean, conversations are always fascinating when people are telling their stories and sharing their expertise. And you have a heck of a lot in personally and well as your MBBJ uh, organization. So I wanted to give you one final moment to say, is there anything that you would like to have our audience walk away from with a final comment or anything that you want to reiterate or reinforce? Uh, there's one idea I definitely wanted to share. And I think the thing that's been fascinating for me as I've evolved as a workplace strategist is really understanding how our workplaces were built as if humans were machines, right? You know, Taylorism kicks off. We have, you know, all that scientific management stuff and we're trying to build an industrial line for human work. And it's been refreshing and delightful and sort of a, a relief to see our industry say, oh, wait a minute, it's actually humans doing the work with all of their idiosyncrasies and all their foibles. How do we build environments for humans? And so I'm really um, fascinated to see how this pandemic has accelerated that shift and to think about what helps us be successful as humans what it takes to help people feel like they really have a purpose, that they really have choice and that they have opportunities to grow and pursue things that are fascinating to them within 
the framework of an organization that is, you know, achieving something together. So I am really happy to see that workplace strategy itself is also evolving away from the do we have the right seat sharing ratio? Do we have the right square footage per person? Do we have the right mix of meeting rooms and, and things like that too? Who are you as an organization? What do your humans need to be successful? And how can we create a work experience that includes space and it includes technology and it includes HR policies that make all of that successful? So to me, I feel like this is this great moment for this profession and the opportunity to really rethink how we work every day. Thank you so very much, Kelly. It's been really a delight having the conversation with you and the learning that you've shared. And I will let us all know that um, uh, the transcript will be published and many of Kelly's references will be on the podcast page so you can find out more. And the Wonder Podcast is available on all streaming services. So you go look for it and listen to Kelly Griffin from NBBJ. And thank you so much for coming to the Wonder Podcast. Thank you.